1: Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile Hi-Fi Podcast. I'm Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. Doug, so today we're going to discuss questions submitted by our local Longmont friend, Austin. Uh, Austin wants to know more about what life in early retirement looks like, and more importantly, how folks draw down their savings. But before we get into that, I have a question for you. Did you ever ponder what your life would... And I guess I should back up a second... Whether or not we're retired is up for debate. We don't have formal jobs, but we both work kind of like right now. People could call this work. But when you left formal work after you got laid off from your job, did you ever consider what your life would look like in the future? I know you ramped up your side hustles. Is right now, right here, did you ever have any idea that you would be mm-hmm. doing this?
0: No, not not at all. I tapered down with the intensity that I was working especially right when I got laid off, man. Yeah, I I didn't think about it. But as time time went on, this is a horrible answer. I'll try to clean it up here. Basically, I never thought about when I wasn't going to be working and what I was going to be doing, which I don't know why. When I think back when I first got a job, I was in the consulting industry and I wasn't put on a project right away. So they literally pay you and you just stay home. Or at the time, that's what happened. So, I worked on my house. <laughs> um, so, I, I always kept busy. So, I think I probably just assume ah, uh, there's a couple things you could work on. There's always, like, little projects you can do. But generally, the answer is no. I didn't think too far ahead. And currently like we have a bunch of friends that don't have traditional jobs or don't work at all so we have plenty of examples to see what people are actually doing when they don't have a corporate job people fill up their time it turns out there's no like i don't see many people sitting around bored
1: no it's super easy to fill up your time and you hardly ever hear of people going back to work either i can think of a couple mention mentions of it i don't know these people personally they would actually be pretty interesting to talk to if you know someone like that in the audience uh, or if you are that person let us know because it would be interesting to see what drove you back to work i could think of
0: two not to derail us but robert and carla
1: yeah i guess they did take time off but did they ever intend on retiring like i know they did the pacific coast trail the pct and Ed uh, Carla's, I know Robert does work full-time. He actually works more than full-time now, I think, 50 hours a week. But Carla, she's got a, another gig. I don't think it's quite full-time, is it?
0: No, I, don't, I think you're right. I I don't know how they framed it. I know they, I don't think Carla was going to go back. We, we should go listen to the interview we did with them and just talk to them. But. I think she she was doing like corporate law, so I don't think she was ever going to go back to that specifically. I think Robert left the door open, but they were like they quit and had no specific plans to go back to work. That doesn't mean they weren't like I'll never work again. But Robert, he seems to enjoy work and like uh, all the pieces of it. And I don't know. I, I have heard of a couple people that went back to work. And I don't know fucking why. Like, I, I have no idea. Robertson anomaly is crazy.
1: Yeah. I'll say a couple of different things about them. One is that they don't have kids. So you've got a lot more time in your hands if you don't have kids. Like after ours get out of school at three o'clock, I'm helping with math and I'm taxi, like always uh, driving them around everywhere. So you have a lot less time. They don't have kids. The, the other thing I'd say is they both seem like you alluded to very happy with what they do. I know Robert loves his job and I think Carla does too. And I, I think it's a little bit different if you go back to work under their circumstances. I don't know if they were even necessarily bored by not working. I th- I do think they gen- genuinely enjoy what they do, even though they don't need the money. And, and they made a conscious choice to go back to work. It's not like coming out of school where you have to go to work to get money to support yourself and pay off your student loans and all that kind of stuff. I think it's a lot different when it's a pure choice like it is for them. And
0: Right. And that's the thing, exactly. Like they intentionally made the decision. And I think, again, you know what? We should have him on and we could ask, like, why the fuck would you go back to work? You don't actually need to. But one, the thing that jumps out at me is like, even though Robert enjoys working, he travels quite a bit. And I got to think the opportunity cost is off. He's very smart. I'm sure he's making the perfect decision for him. But, like, I'm thinking there must be something better that you could do with your time and money and effort versus like doing the work that he's doing. I think there's maybe some social, like, good that his work does. But at the same time, I'm just like, ah, man, you could do something else. But that's just me.
1: No, no, that's a super good tangent. And that's actually something I think about all the time with people like Robert. Had they just not experimented enough and found like their true calling. Like what if he would have had a rule around it that he had to take six months off, not doing the PC, just sitting around his house. You wonder if something else would have come to him and he would have no longer wanted to go back to work or maybe gone to work in a part-time situation.
0: Right? Yeah. So we can go on a whole tangent on that, but we will, we'll have him back on. We just saw him the other day. So now We'll direct the same question at you. What did you think about as far as retirement in the future?
1: Yes. So, Doug, I think much less, much like you, I didn't really consider it or ponder what the heck I'd be doing. I was just running away from a job I didn't like. And I actually remember the first day, my first full day, that wasn't a weekend that I was off of work. I think my last day at work was a Thursday, so it was a Friday. And I remember going for a walk and it was around a park near our house in downtown Longmont. And uh, I remember looking around and it was all like uh, young mothers pushing kids around in strollers or senior citizens like real life retirees or traditional retirees, I should say. It it gave me a little bit of anxiety. I'm like, what have I done? What comes next with my life? (laughs) I don't know. I've liberated myself from my job, but what am I going to do with my time? And it turns out now I've got 500 more things than I'll ever have time to do in my life, which I think is a very good problem. I never wanted to be bored. But yeah, what we're doing here right now is something I could have never predicted. Uh, So is owning the co-working space. Uh, Yeah, I could think of a million different things that I had no idea I would be doing. But it's also good. It's like this, uh, I feel like I'm at one of those nasty buffets from our childhood. And I say nasty, and uh, I liked those buffets where they've got all the like mashed potatoes and roast yeah. beef, and they've got the ice cream machine, and I just want it all. And as a kid, I did have it all, but as an adult, this buffet of life, I can't have it all. i got to be picky, but it's, it's a good problem to have.
0: Yeah, and I think, I mean, you You said, ah, oh, it's a good problem to have. You have 500 things to do. You're still finishing a couple bathrooms, right?
1: right. That's right. I've got so close to being done with our master bath, and then i got to <laughs> redo the girls' bath, but that'll be easy.
0: Yeah, we've, we've all heard that before, but you're going to be done with this stuff eventually.
1: I think by the end of October, Doug, like two weeks.
0: <laughs> don't make promises you can't keep, but are you adding more stuff on top of it? So that that's the thing that I observe with you is like, you keep adding more. You're like, oh, I should be done in October. And then you you pick up a new thing for November. So are you, and I'm telling you, don't add more stuff for November.
1: I am adding more, but it's a good Jesus. thing. I was just, no, Doug, no, Doug. You're going to appreciate this and like it. So I was out on my walk just now. I went for a walk before I recorded this. And the thought I had was I'm going to record with Doug. And I've been pretty crappy at the podcast. I've been pretty crappy at the blog. And it's because it's been a side thing. It's been something I squeeze into my life because I've got all this other stuff going on. Like I just finished this huge bathroom remodel that really consumed my life. It took like 40 hours to get the towel done because it was intricate So I'm not going to add anything, but I'm going to expand on the things that I enjoy doing now, but haven't given their due time. And I really look forward to it because I think if I actually made (laughs) a little bit of an effort, (laughs) I think at least I, Doug, you're a pro, but I am not. I think I could be better with the outlines, with the show notes, which I don't do half the time. And, And with the book too, I feel so energized knowing that. I am almost truly done with all this stuff. I even outsourced the last big project Mm -hmm, I had, mm -hmm. which is a railing just so I could move on and get that stuff behind me and work on this stuff, which uh, I would have enjoyed doing the railing, but I enjoy doing this more. Therefore I need to subtract it more from my life. So Doug, to be clear, I am not adding any other additional things, but I am going to, I do look forward to spending more time on the things we've already been working on. I hope that's a good answer for you.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. Pretty good. And I think, yeah, the main thing is, uh, Like I said, you're like, ah, I'll just, I'm going to have some free time coming up. Let's go ahead and take on another project. Maybe you see a good deal for a house, you know, and you're like, oh, maybe, maybe the time is right again, but you won't do that. Okay.
1: I absolutely will not do that. I I will give you, if I buy another house, I'll say it right here. I'll give you (laughs) 10,000 in cash.
0: (laughs) Okay. That's a deal. I can get a nice guitar with that. Yeah. All right. Let's get on to the question from Austin and really appreciate him sending this in. I'll read uh, what I can here. It goes kind of deep and we're going to break it down in a couple different areas. But one reason this is a great question is it forced us to do a little bit of research and thinking ahead of time, especially you, Carl. I mean, I had to think too, but you actually went through and made some great notes. But It's about the nuts and bolts that actually you and I haven't gotten into, even though you've been retired for five plus years, really, uh, Mindy just went to work and then you haven't had to draw down on any of your uh, investments at all, right?
1: Yeah, I just, well, I actually did it for the first time to uh, purchase a car. Should we talk about that now or save that for a different time?
0: Let's save it for a different time, but... I think people know what might be going on. Cool. It's a cliffhanger. Yeah. So I'll read this from Austin. I've been driving around Denver all day on deliveries and listening to a bunch of your podcast. Definitely appreciate y'all's show lately. It seems like you have been upping the bar and getting some higher level guests. Thanks. We'll take that compliment. Give some specific examples of how people deal with FI and early retirement. Meaning, what exactly does it look like on a month-to-month and year-to-year basis? I always wonder exactly how people do it. And, you know, again, we haven't specifically had to draw down or... Uh, you know, think about it, but we have sort of graduated to the the portion where we don't have traditional jobs anymore and we have a ton of freedom. So, we could talk a little bit about that. And I know, Carl, there's a couple of examples that you came up with here.
1: Yeah. Do you think we should talk about these examples? We've got some specific people in here, but this is such a A broad topic and Mm -hmm. the main thing I think about it is it's not going to look the same for any two people, not the same at all, completely different. But I think there are some main points that we can talk about as well. But like the examples I had in here was where Eric and he was on the podcast a while ago and when he first stopped working, he uh, immediately started doing handyman work for friends and other people. So he kind of gave himself another job, but it was a job he enjoyed much more than what he was doing. Uh, So I'm not sure. Can you really call him retired? Who knows? But he has since quit that. And now he is working on a webcomic. He likes to draw. So he's doing what he truly loves. And so far he is making zero money at it. He's just doing it because he likes to do it.
0: And I think one one thing to highlight, yeah, some people would be like, oh, that's not retired. He just changed jobs. But I think it would be similar for like, you know, the path that you and I have taken, people would be like, from our old, old jobs, they'd be like, yeah, you kind of retired because you're not you're not doing the same shit. No one's telling you what to do. So Eric, uh, he worked in, he was in finance, right? He was a mutual fund, like numbers guy, right? Yep. We interviewed him. So people could check out that episode from way back. So going from that sort of high level career to handyman work, his peers would probably be like, what the fuck are you doing? And he could say like, ah, I retired from that. Now I'm just doing, you know, I'm self-employed. I'm doing what I want and I'm working when I want and I have like full auto- autonomy. So I think some people can go along with that, but per the strictest definition of like not working, yeah, some people would be like, that's not retired.
1: Yeah, and the other example I have, which I think might be, A perfect example is uh, Pete, Mr. Money Mustache himself, because like that guy, if he doesn't want to do something, he is not going (laughs) to do it. And I'm sure there's lots of things that people could point to on the blog, like him and I installed a heat pump at the HQ and people could call that work. But uh, we really enjoy that type of thing. We've replicated uh, that same project in other people's homes. But the main thing I think with him is he's not going to do something if he doesn't want to do it. He, he doesn't plan anything. He just likes having his life, an open book, and doing things that come to him that he knows he'll enjoy. And that's pretty much it. Like he, I was looking back through his blog the other day, and he used to write like every week like tons of blog posts. And now it's like once every two months, if so we're lucky, he is just up. And it's because he doesn't want to do it. So he doesn't. If inspiration strikes, he'll do something. But otherwise, he doesn't write a word.
0: And I appreciate that too. I mean, it was probably, he was very enthusiastic when he first started blogging and he wanted to share ideas and and just work on it. And then after whatever, five or six or 10 years, it's like, it's not as novel. It's not as interesting. And maybe um, he wants to do some other stuff with his time, which even if it's just, I don't know what he does. He hangs around. (laughs) walks around, rides his bike everywhere. He rides a bike all the time, right? Yep. Yeah. So, okay. And then, okay. uh,
1: I've got one closing thought on this. I think maybe the litmus test for what you do in retirement and to know if you're successful or not, uh, should be if it feels forced, if something feels forced, if you don't want to do it, you shouldn't do it. Kind of like the Derek Sivers quote, if it's not a hell yes, it should be a no. So, When I wake up, am I excited to work on the book that we're doing? Yes, I am. So therefore, I should do it. But anything I don't want to do, I should eliminate that. And I think if you're truly excited about your work and you're making money from it, like more power to you. The internet retirement police might arrest you or whatever they do, call you out. But if that's your passion and that's what you're excited to get out of bed to do, who cares what anyone Mm -hmm. else thinks? I think
0: it shows you arrive too if people call you out. like No one's called me out for anything. Or I, you know what? I just wouldn't be aware of it.
1: <laughs> it it'll happen, Doug. <laughs> yeah, we get it.
0: I, I say it all the time because it it cuts. It hurts when we get those uh, negative reviews. People are just mean, and I think maybe that does maybe that does mean we made it. They don't treat us like people.
1: <laughs> yeah, they treat us like animals. Okay, but we have feelings too, <laughs> audience. We. Uh...
0: We're very fragile.
1: Yeah. You can be constructive with your criticism. You don't have to be mean or you just don't have to listen. We're trying to help you out. We're paying money to do this, which is actually true. We uh, have taken zero ads so far. (laughs) We,
0: we, um, yeah, if you do have complaints, leave YouTube comments. Helps the algorithm, so. (laughs) Okay, how do you want to wrap this up? You had some main points here. Uh,
1: Real quick, I think there's some main points to early retirement. In this, we're going to have, I think, maybe a three or four-part series on happiness, Doug. I've actually started writing all these, and I I think it'll be super good. But one of the things I've come to is a a routine is super important. Like You're going to have to do certain things in your life, like exercise, make food, uh, get up and do all the things you have to do to take care of your life. Uh, If you have kids, that changes everything too. Like we alluded to before, kind of half your time is gone because they're around asking you to drive them around and they need to eat and they need clothing and uh, they fight, you have to break up fights. So I don't, Eric once said, you're not truly financially independent unless, until your kids are out of the house. And I think that might be the wrong wording, maybe like life independent. Like you've got that restriction and we all chose to have kids. So most of us did. So it's on us. Uh, this is going to be different for everyone. What makes you want to wake up and do stuff is not going to be the same for, for anyone else. And you have to figure that out for yourself. And that's difficult. Again, we'll talk more about that on our happiness episode. But then kind of a big one is uh, things evolve over time. What makes you happy as a kid from a teen to when you're a college student to when you're working to retired, it's different. And you have to be thoughtful and introspective and always considering that uh, as you move through the phases of life. But again, we'll save all that for our happiness series which will be coming up sometime.
0: And uh, one one thing as far as like how retirement can look different we are we're, we're in our 40s, right? Yes. You're in the tail end, you know, clearly, you're a little older. But the the thing is I had my professional career from about 10 years. So I'm kind of looking at like 10 year segments of like how my interest has shifted. And I suspect it'll keep going because that's the way the last few decades have been. And I'm sure I'll get bored with some of the things I'm really interested in now. Like 10 years ago, I was spending a ton of time brewing beer and just like that whole subculture of like brewing beer homebrew competitions, judging beer breweries. And now I'm, I'm still interested, but not the same level that I was before. And I'm sure it'll shift in the future. Do you have similar observations of like what you are interested in and how it's changed over time? Or do kids just wreck the whole thing?
1: (laughs) Uh, Kids, kids don't wreck it. They just uh, limit the amount of time that you're free to do these things. But yeah, it's completely changed for me. And I was thinking about this today. Actually, I used to be happy and excited to do these home projects and they still give me a little bit of fulfillment, but now I've moved on. And I'm finally like, you know, after six and a half years of quitting my formal job, I'm okay with letting go of all these projects. And uh, I think it was because I was so high strung and I like, had work 40 or 50 hours a week at my job, then the same amount on the house and then write the blog. And I publish three times a week, and it, it took me these six years to wind it down. But now I absolutely, I absolutely love the thought that I don't have to do that anymore. And I could spend two hours a day at the gym, listening to a podcast, doing weights, or walking around the track. I love that I'm going to be able to finally have the time to finish up the book we've been working on, and work more on the podcast and see where we can take it. So. It, a year or two ago, these thoughts would have given me anxiety. I'm like, oh, you need another project. Like, hence this house mm. we bought that I probably should not have purchased. I'm not doing that again. Again, $10,000 to you, Doug, if I buy another <laughs> house, another project house. Yeah. And I was, to that
0: point, like, I do, I was just telling him, like, I've done so little, like, this year. I wonder what you, I mean, you probably still think currently that I'm like super lazy, which is why I'm a great partner to write this book with you. But if you would have bumped into me those years when you were working like hundred plus hours a week and you saw how little I was doing, you'd be like, what is wrong with this guy? Isn't that motivated to do anything? But really I'm just well rested and I don't have the same. Luckily I'm, I don't have the anxious tendencies that a lot of actually a lot of my friends are like that.
1: Yeah. I, I actually just assumed this whole time that you were in your basement there working on your side hustle. So all all this is new to me. I didn't know. I knew your life was pretty carefree and a little bit less high strung than mine, but I didn't know it was that, but that's great. That's the reason you can put up with me. I can be difficult at times. So (laughs) it works out. It's actually complimentary. In the,
0: um, in the sound check, we were talking about paper notebooks and stuff like that. So I have this notebook here and there's like, uh, some, sticky notes in here it looks like it's used pretty pretty well right so i brought this it was in my backpack and um, the last time i wrote in it was a fucking month ago and then before that it was like another month so this is just it's kind of staged like i don't know it looks like i'm busy but i'm really not that busy
1: it does look good. I saw that in the pages, like from here are a little bit ruffled. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
0: Just throw it on the ground, get some dirt on there. Yeah. And yeah, it looks like I'm, I'm working really hard, but yeah, it's mostly blank. Okay. So Austin actually did write some good questions and I can't believe we're so far in the episode and we haven't even read the first one, yet. but did we close out the the portion that you wanted to cover for the, this?
1: I think so. Okay. I, I have a lot more to say on all cool. of that happiness and early retirement. I think I, it was funny real quick, Doug, last Wednesday I was in a hotel in California. Uh, the next day I was going to camp fine. I, I woke up at 6 43 AM in the morning and I'm like, Oh my God, I, I think I figured out like all the pieces to happiness at, uh, I'm writing about it now and we'll talk about it soon. (laughs) Yeah. Like I woke up and I think I was dreaming about it or something. I look at my watch, like, holy shit. This is like an epiphany. So it's good. Um,
0: So you actually wrote it down.
1: I did. Wow.
0: Okay. I can't wait to talk about it. I've been thinking a lot about it too. And I think, I mean, we have even mentioned uh, when we finished this first book and launch and get it out the door, I think like a practical guide to happiness with our spin on it. That's the next one.
1: So maybe you could be a good graphic novel. I know you said in the past on past podcasts that you're very skilled at drawing uh, male genitalia, but I don't know how good you are at drawing anything. <laughs> anything else? But I guess the, you, you could draw people representations.
0: Yeah, you you can't. They all have personalities, and don't leave that notebook around. I'll just tell you that.
1: <laughs> so a graphic novel for a book too. Stay tuned. But on happiness, it's gonna it's gonna be great. Yeah. There's
0: going to be a lot of characters in there. Okay. Back to Austin's email. So he says, I'm interested in people or how people are drawing down and not adding additional income streams other than passive income. So, quick little note he he did use passive income uh, in there. Uh, almost nothing is passive. So, even if someone like describes a business model and they're like, hey, this is passive, there usually is like set up. And then ongoing maintenance. So it can be minimal, but almost nothing is passive. Can you think of anything that's really passive other than like index fund investing where you can literally like not do anything?
1: A mutual friend of ours, Boulder Steve, just has all his money in pure cash because he has enough where he can survive. Like he could just take the cash out, not count on it, earning any interest and live on that for the rest of his life. Uh, There's a blog post on JL Collins' blog, which we'll link to in the show notes, and I'm opening up my notebook so I can make a note of this. Um, Oh, there's a dick pic. Is that you? No. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, hardly anything is truly passive. You're going to have to do some kind of, even with a a a 4% VT SAX portfolio, they're still rebalancing. You're going to have part of it in bonds and probably rebalance at least once per year.
0: Okay. So, okay. The heart of the question, we'll get into some of the details. And Austin gave us specific examples, maybe like people with real estate, people with index funds and the drawdown strategy. So I'll ask the question, Carl, you're more the real estate guy. So I'll let you kind of answer it and then we'll go back and forth. So Austin says, how do people with paid off rental properties handle retirement income from those? Do they take monthly rental income payments? Do they reinvest some back into the properties? How do they actually manage this?
1: Yeah, so I think this one is pretty simple. We actually have a rental property now, and what we wanna do is make sure our emergency fund is taken care of first. I think most seasoned landlords would have this. So you've got X amount of money to to take care of a roof or a furnace or anything else that could go wrong. How much you wanna keep in that is dependent on your level of risk tolerance. Uh, after that, most people would want to have a cash buffer for a vacancy. There might be a time where your unit or house is empty for like weeks or months. You want to be able to write over that part of uh, of your house, a vacancy. And then after that, uh, most rents are paid monthly. I've never heard of anyone doing anything else. Sometimes you hear about someone who wants to go in there and pay you like a year's rent up front. And that could sound very appealing, but that's a big warning sign, like maybe they want to have a a meth lab in your basement or grow pot or do some unauthorized thing. So what they're trying to do is minimize interaction with you. So that can be a warning sign. So I would say the real basic and easy answer is uh, I would suspect most landlords just live off that monthly rent payment. And uh, I facilitate this through apartments.com, which is great. They have all kinds of tools on there and it is completely free, which is uh, yeah, super nice tool, apartments.com
0: do they market stuff to you or something like why it's not nothing's free right
1: uh so what they do is they're kind of like paypal so if i pay you through paypal it'll take a couple days to get the money into your account unless i want to pay a fee so if i pay you that fee to get the money in there instantly paypal makes money off that uh if it takes a couple days paypal makes money off the float all that cash they have sitting around waiting to get to its final destination. So I assume that's how they do do that. And I think they have some other services you can pay for, like you can pay extra to have a fancier listing or more photos or something like that.
0: Cool. Do you have guidelines for the emergency fund and the buffer for vacancies?
1: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, The main thing I would say is if you have multiple properties, you might want to keep X amount per house, but if you've got multiple properties, all all the furnaces aren't probably going to go out on the houses simultaneously, so you could leverage that, and it's not going to be, if you have 10 houses, your emergency fund isn't going to be 10x one house, it might be 3x or 4x, again, whatever you feel c- comfortable with, but... Yeah, I, I haven't really thought about any guidelines. I think it really is different for everyone. If you're in a place like Colorado where there's hail, maybe you want to account for a new roof if you don't have insurance that's going to to cover that. I would say it depends on a lot of, a lot of variables too. If you've got a, a new condo, there's probably going to be a lot less that can go wrong with that versus a house from the 80s where a lot of the mechanicals are older and it's got a yard and an exterior that you have to take care of. So I don't think... Uh, yeah. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know. So, much.
0: Okay. The, um, Mindy wrote a book, right? Yes. It's probably about real estate, isn't it? Yeah. I bet it's in there. I bet there's some guideline, like a month and a half or something, like some ballpark. And then it's like, if your house is a hundred years old, put more in there. Right. So there's, there's some guidelines out there. I bet we just don't know them. Okay. It's okay. If you don't know. <laughs> so I think, overall, as a person who doesn't have a real estate business or interest, it sounds like you just run it like a business. You can live off the cash flow. And our friends, uh, Chris and Deb from go bucket yourself. If I remember right, I'm pretty sure they did real estate and they have some cash flowing real estate. And that was their quickest path to retire early, but they don't have a desire to like have a huge portfolio. So they just have a few properties and it's what they need to go along with their other investments. So Overall, if you have like real estate income, it's just like regular income. You run the business, reinvest if you want, make sure you have like some cash to deploy in case of emergencies. Is that a good summary?
1: Yeah, I would say so. if you're interested in real estate, maybe get a mentor. Perfect. Okay.
0: For the next part, Austin says for people with say a million dollars invested in index funds, What withdrawal strategies do they use? Do they take a monthly withdrawal or an annual withdrawal? Is it a variable percentage? Do you use the 4% rule? What do you do to start getting money out of there?
1: Yeah, interesting. If you're going to do this, the first thing you would have already thought of is how much you're going to take out per year. So let's just say we're doing the 4% rule on a million dollars, so you're going to need About $40,000 your first year of retirement, or that's how much you're going to take out. Uh, The first thing I think, and again, we are not financial advisors. This is what we would do. Uh, We are not telling you to do this, but these are our ideas. Uh, The first thing I would do is turn off the dividend reinvestment. I think the dividend yield on VTSAX is currently about 1.5%. So let's say you've got a million dollars in there. Turning off dividend reinvestment is going to give you about $15,000. So you're going to have to come up with $25,000 in additional money to live. And very simply, you're going to have to sell some of your assets. I think that gives people a lot of anxiety. And I don't think it should because it's not like you're going to be it's not like that mountain of money is going to be dwindling. And the reason is the 4% rule. We've talked about this and for an infinite amount of time. That is the worst case scenario. So in most years, your portfolio is going to perform better than that. So you are going to sell 4% of it, of it off. But at the end of the year, your dollar, your money pile should be bigger than what it was when you started.
0: You recently sold some stock, right? I did. Did you have anxiety, even though you know intellectually that it was okay?
1: I did. It gave me a lot of anxiety. But the funny thing is, Doug, and I found the same thing happens with me with big purchases. Like I bought the concert for $10,000 and going up to the point where I'm clicking the button and putting all my information in, like putting the credit card number in for the concert or deciding which stocks I'm going to sell. I have a lot of anxiety. I'm like, oh, this doesn't feel right because I I guess it's because I hardly ever do it. Um, spending is a skill just like, uh, investing and so is selling your assets. But after I hit the submit button, I felt really good in both cases. Cool. I don't know if that was the question you even asked.
0: No, no, that, I mean, that, that is it. I mean, even though you know that like you can, that you should sell some stock so that you could buy some, something that you need, Yeah. it's still stressful.
1: Yeah, it is it is pretty stressful and that. I actually just did that a a week or two ago and that was the first time we've ever done it. I think. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Cause in the past um, I think you said, uh, you know, Mindy had some income coming in from selling a house commission came in. So you were able to pay for vacation or whatever. Some big expense that was coming up. So you haven't actually had to do it. And I think, I mean, the reason why is because we spend whatever 40 years, just accumulating and like we're like okay stay the course like we're doing long-term planning and now it's like okay now do the opposite just unravel this whole fucking thing so that's i think that's why it would be a little stressful
1: yeah and it's a quick pivot too like you said we're saving 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 and then we're selling and i think it's also maybe an acknowledgement of that we're growing old too like ah, oh crap i'm actually at that point in life too it feels like another phase
0: yeah you start getting colonoscopies all the time <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Those are kind of fun though. I don't know if I had to sell stock or get a colonoscopy. I'm not sure which one I would choose.
0: Yeah, I think I know which one I would choose, but you know what? I'm going to have one coming up here. I'm about to turn 45. So yeah, you'll have to give me some, some tips. I'm looking forward to some of the other, I don't know. Can we talk about it? But the holidays are coming up. There's going to be a, there's a little bit of a different flavor of the, uh, the lube for the home colonoscopy kit.
1: Yeah, uh, we'll have a formal commercial soon, but we've got the home colonoscopy kit, which is called ASS. Uh, What what does that stand for? At-home sphincter scope. And we mentioned in the previous one, they had a pumpkin spice lube for Halloween, and now they've got some new flavors coming out for Christmas, Mm -hmm. including eggnog and peppermint.
0: Nice. I love peppermint.
1: Do you okay like, or wait are you team eggnog or not eggnog is controversial
0: yeah you know what i i i'm not a super huge fan but i've like when when it's around i'll try some to see if i really like it but um these days you know i'm trying to stay in shape and i know it's pretty there's a lot of calories in that there's a lot of uh, dairy fat in there
1: yeah it's not good it's good but not good for you
0: Okay. So back on track here. So the first thing that you would do is to stop reinvesting the dividends. Yes. What's next?
1: Uh, So Austin also asked us about frequency. How often would you do it? And I think this is entirely personal. Some people might be better off selling all their stuff at the beginning of the year in one fell swoop. And then the cash is just sitting there. Uh, that's personally how I would do it because that causes me to pay less attention to my portfolio, which is a stupid activity. But other people, and I don't think my answer is the best because over time the stock market goes up. Therefore, you should want all your money in there till the last possible second when you need it. So I think the. The more frequently you're willing to do it uh, might be better, maybe on a, a monthly basis instead. But then that's just another thing you have to do. So I think it depends on the person. How how would you do it, Doug?
0: Similar to you, I, I haven't had to do this before, but I think I would set up monthly, uh, like an auto automatic sell, right? You could do that and then uh, payout right, to go to your checking account from your brokerage account. So I think that would be what I would do on a monthly basis, but I would probably make the decision at the beginning of the year or annually, it doesn't matter when, right? So annually make that decision based on, you know, what your plans are for the year and perhaps the stock market performance from the last year or recently. And then probably quarterly, right? Cause I don't want to be in the portfolio, like trying to make evaluations, like, should I take money out? Like you set it up at the beginning, but I would, I would have checkpoints quarterly just to be flexible, right? So there could be a big upswing or a big downswing that might change my decision and we could change our decision. We don't have to stick to the the thing that we decided in at the beginning of the year and, I think that's that's probably what I would do. That way, you have a little bit more flexibility to be adaptable, but you have made the decision early, early on, and then you know you can stick with it.
1: I like one thing in particular that you said, and that is the automation part. So it's kind of like having a job where this money just magically shows up in your account, but right. you don't have the work part of it, and that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think yeah, I think it just. I, some of our friends, I'm, I'm sure someone has told me, "Oh yeah, the money just goes to my checking account, and then it's there." And um, maybe it was—is it? Uh, did Brandon do this, Mad Scientist, where he was like, "Money goes in there, and I have to spend all the money in that." He's experimenting with some spending. And d- does this ring a bell?
1: Uh, I know Mark Tropman does that for his Fun Bucket concept. I'm not sure about Brandon.
0: Okay, so. If that's not true, sorry. But anyway, perhaps monthly is a good way to do it. Um, Some people may do it annually. I haven't heard any other uh, suggestions. It's usually monthly or annually is what people talk about. Okay. And as far as the amount, so Austin wondered if you do a variable percentage or if you just use the 4% rule, what would you do, Carl?
1: Yeah, I guess it just depends on the needs for the year. If, if there's anything that's certain in early retirement, it's that life is uncertain. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I mean it in a super good way. It's pretty easy to plan a life where you're working and you might have like three or four weeks off of work every year. But when you're not working, all these things come up like we just went to Hawaii and we weren't really expecting to, to do that at the beginning of the year. It kind of came up and then we went on a helicopter ride and then this concert, none of these things I had plan for Uh, so for us i I don't think we could automate it as well or if we did we'd have to revisit it frequently and maybe up the money or take it back down depending on what our plans are
0: okay and i think i'm not sure how we're going to end up doing it but one thing that we've been looking at a little bit more is the actual withdrawal strategies And typically, you know, we talk about the 4% rule because it's the most popular, the easiest to understand. So news stories can cover it and then podcasters can talk about it ad nauseum. But typically people are probably going to have varying expenses. And logically, if there's a, if it's a down year, especially like early in your retirement, you are. You're holding the risk of the sequence of returns, right? So if you have down years and you're taking out what is a, a higher percentage of than you intended because you're looking at like fixed a fixed amount, say forty thousand dollars a year, um, it could throw things off. So th- I think most people would end up having a variable percentage that they withdraw based on their plans and then the market performance. We're gonna link up to the Phi Calc app, which has maybe like eight or 10 different withdrawal strategies. And they're explained fairly simply. Some of them are a constant amount, $40,000 a year, and then it goes up with inflation, or maybe it's 4%, or maybe it's something a little different, right? There's a lot of different varieties. Some of them say, hey, it's a a minimum of say $20,000 a year, but never more than $100,000 if the market goes way up. So there's all these different ways that you can withdraw differently based on what your goals are and what you want to do. And they all have different pros and cons and ease of implementation uh, versus like the maximum returns and all that kind of stuff. Have you gone deep into any of this? I have not. It's very fascinating, but it could be overly complicated versus just like we're saying, eh, kind of look at the year, be a little flexible and know that some years you're going to be able to spend a little more, withdraw a little bit more because the market's up. Or if the market's down, maybe a little less. Sure. So, But you can make it super complicated.
1: Uh, one other factor I'll talk about while we're on this topic, and I'll make it quick because we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a different context later on, is that in our case for healthcare, we don't want to be on Medicaid, where if you don't draw any income, that's what you would be shoved into. I just don't like it. Uh, Health care is pretty weird in that there is not a wealth test, so you could have $10 million, and if you have no income, you're on public aid for health insurance. And I don't want to do that. So we always want to have some kind of income. And you can generate that through capital gains, so we don't have to be on Medicaid. Uh, But that's a whole other topic, where you're drawing your money from. And one point in that, I heard Sean Mullaney talk a little bit about this this past weekend at Camp Fi, is you you probably don't want to have all your money and it, in an investment that wouldn't allow you to generate income and you kind of need it anyway. If you're going to be an early retiree, it's difficult to get your money out of a, out of a tax sheltered thing like a 401k or something like that. It can be done, but it's complex. Um, so think about where you're going to draw your money down to.
0: Mm -hmm. And actually quick, um, quick tangent. You mentioned you want to have some income, Right so that you're you're not on Medicare. Yes,
1: Medicaid. You, uh, Medicaid, yeah.
0: I always mix those up. Me too. I can't remember, I, I was uh, talking to Elizabeth, right? And she, basically I was like, why didn't they name them different things? It's like naming two roads that are right next to each other. It's like one's court, one circle. It's like, fuck, just <laughs> name it a different thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the, the, point, the point is, what what is the point? What was I gonna? Okay, so you want to show some income, but let's say you're spending nine. Let's say you're spending ninety thousand dollars a year in your household, right? How are you spending that money but not showing income?
1: Uh, well, you would generate that. So, how are you spending the money? But what was the question again? It,
0: if confused. you're if you are, how do you not have income if you're spending money?
1: Uh, I guess if you are in a situation where maybe you just have a big cash pile and you're living off that, like maybe you saved a bunch of money in mm-hmm. cash before you retired, uh, in that case, you're going to have to sell something or generate income to stay off mm-hmm. and Medicaid. And you said Medicare because you think I'm that old, Doug. I, I know <laughs> what you're doing. It's so a Freudian slip. When
0: well, you mentioned that you you guys are per- personally concerned that you don't want to show zero income but that's not a risk because you're spending money right
1: yes and we don't have big cash reserves so in our case we are going to have to sell investments but i mean there's ways to like we could potentially sell investments that don't have a lot of capital gains that would still would give us enough money to live off the year but that would still keep us under medicare like we live in boulder county which is an expensive cost of living place for those calculations so Mm -hmm. and i don't remember what exactly the number is but, I think if we didn't specifically try, we could find ourselves in a place where we didn't generate income. Like another one is if we just took the principal from past Roth contributions, which isn't taxable, we could do that now, even though we're not fifty nine and a half, just the contribution part, not any mm-hmm. growth on it. and that none of that is taxable.
0: right. okay. yep, I, I always wonder that sometimes. and I, you you actually told me a similar answer off off the record once, so I was letting you know. Letting you shine there. Okay. Ready to get into a couple of the others here?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: What are some of examples of the withdrawal systems that early retirees use for predictable income? Do they set up automated transfers on a schedule, move money to checking as needed?
1: Yeah, Doug, uh, I, I think you kind of nailed it with your past answer. You can go on there and automate it so money just shows up in your account. And it depends where you're getting your money from. If you've got the rental house that money should just show up in your account too. Uh, there's ways to automate pretty much everything in modern life. And I think you should err on the side of, of doing that too. It gives you one less thing to think about and one less thing to log on to and have to do in life.
0: Yeah. There's probably, probably some other options, but yeah, that's probably the simplest and that's usually the best way to do things. All right, next. Uh, How do retirees deal with required minimum distributions, RMDs, from retirement accounts like 401ks or traditional IRAs? Do they withdraw more than needed and invest the excess?
1: Yeah, so this is super interesting. I just learned this this past weekend that the RMD age was raised to 75. And I think the average lifespan in America isn't that much older than that. So some of us won't have anything to worry about because we're just going to Buy the farm before it becomes an issue. Uh, But we got back to the, uh, or let's talk about the healthcare issue again. If you need to generate income and reduce your chances of paying RMDs, you can do Roth conversions. And that means you're going to take your Roth IRA, or I'm sorry, your normal IRA or 401k and convert that to a Roth. So it becomes tax-free in the future, but you pay income tax on every dollar that you convert now, so if you really don't want to pay RMDs, if that's a way to get, if that's really a concern for you, you could start doing those conversions right now.
0: And that's something we're going to be looking at when our income goes down, right? So once once I taper down and our income is much lower, then we'll start making those, uh, so just a transfer or conversion. We'll just yeah. do the conversions over to Roth.
1: Yep. And I think the other thing to keep in mind with this too is, RMD start at seventy five, but you could start taking money from your accounts. I think of the year when you turned fifty nine, so that's sixteen years of runway that you could just draw down your four hundred one k to meet or or your IRA to meet your spending needs, your annual spending needs. So why not do that as well? Keeps things pretty simple.
0: Nice. And then if you had access, Carl, what would you do?
1: Yeah, so Austin asked this as well. I would just put it in a post-tax account. So if I had some RMD problem, I'm, I'm old and I have to take out $300,000 a year, then I guess it just goes to post-tax or I buy a helicopter or some crazy I oh, would do thing. cool shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should go crazy.
0: Yeah. At that point, you know, you put it in another account to grow more, but you're old. So I would say fucking spend that money, right? Hell yeah. What are you waiting for? Yeah, kids, kids don't need it. What tax strategies do early retirees employ? Do they use Roth conversion ladders and other methods to optimize taxes on withdrawals? And how do people make sure they don't withdraw too little and end up leaving excess savings?
1: Doug, that last one is a pretty good problem to have. Having too much money is what Austin is implying here. And if that happens, I think uh, we can help people with that problem. If you have excess (laughs) money, um, we'll send you our routing number and bank account number so you can wire it to us and we'll go buy a helicopter yeah. But yeah this is going to be different for everyone and i think the main thing it depends on doug is where you have your money so if if you have a ton of money in post-tax accounts versus having a bunch of money in tax sheltered accounts that is going to change how you do things and uh, yeah and there's things you can do for a post-tax account i guess we can talk about that now if you have uh, so capital gains for a married couple start at about 90000 and 45000 for a single person. So one strategy that I learned about a couple of years ago that I didn't know existed is, and, and this is obvious, if you have a lot of capital gains but aren't going to bump up against that number, you could sell enough stuff to not have to pay capital gains and then just buy the same thing again. So you're resetting your cost basis, mm. if that makes sense. So when it actually does come time to sell it. You're minimizing the amount of taxes you have to, you're going to pay, and that's called uh, capital gains harvesting, I believe. Mad Scientist has a good article about that, which we'll link to.
0: I've heard of that. Yeah, that's pretty pretty smart.
1: But if you add a ton of money in pre-tax stuff and you want to retire early, maybe you do need to do something like a, what is it—a SEP plan or a 72t or a Roth conversion—so you can get at that money before you're 59. So in that case, you would want to uh, d- to take money from your pre-tax investment instead of, uh, yeah, if you don't have money in post-tax.
0: Can you describe the Roth conversion ladder? Like what mechanisms happen? How do you implement that?
1: Uh, so you're going to take money from your 401k and convert it to a Roth, and I believe, um, Look up the details. We are not tax professionals or professionals in much of anything. (laughs) So say you do $80,000 for 2024. You have to pay $80,000 in income tax for 2024. But I think you have to wait five years of time. After five years of time, you have access to that $80,000, even if you're not 59 and a half. Not anything it grows to. So if it grows to be $120,000, you can only access $80,000 of it, but that $80,000, could give you something to live on before you hit 59. and get
0: Okay. It. So it's like, it's still the same, the same kind of rule where you, you can um, touch the principal, right? You could, you could withdraw the principal. Yes. Okay. So it's the same idea. You're just converting it over, but you have to wait five years.
1: Yeah. So a lot of these uh, plans you have to, it takes a lot of planning, like the uh, separate equal periodic payments. You have to, I think, Declare exactly how much you're going to take out for the next five years. And again, look this up. Go to madfiantist.com or your tax professional. So they take a lot of planning. You kind of have to know how much you're going to need to spend in the future. But if you can do that, you can have access to your pre-tax income ahead of time or your pre-tax investments. And someone made the case, this was actually on Madfiantist, is that There's a 10% penalty hit if you access these funds ahead of time. So if you just took a withdrawal from your 401k now, you'd have to pay a 10% penalty. But this guy made the case that it might even be worthwhile to do that because the 401k saved you from a much higher tax rate than that. Like, uh, I can't remember what these are called, like marginal tax rate or whatever. But any dollar you put into your 401k was... Taxes you didn't have to pay from the top text here. So especially if you're making a lot of money, you saved yourself like twenty-five or twenty-nine or whatever your tax rate is. So it might be worthwhile to just take the hit and and grab that money without doing anything exotic. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So someone could get at the money a little bit early. I personally like I, I wasn't aware of this whole world or the fact that you could get to that uh pre-tax money sooner. I didn't know there were mechanisms even even though you have to jump through some hoops and all that. So once we once Elizabeth and I decided that we didn't want to wait and we want didn't want to wait to get to that money, we were just like, okay, we need to invest in a brokerage account and have flexibility. So we lost some of the tax benefits. We paid more taxes for flexibility, right? So everyone has to make their own decision. And there is a case also, like if you look at the right years, I'm pretty sure if I just would have invested and maxed out everything in the 401ks, I would have come out ahead because the market grew so much in those years. It's not like that all the time. It just happened to be that decade or whatever that was really on fire. I didn't know it at the time. No no one did, right? But the, the point is you have a huge amount of flexibility with the post-tax brokerage accounts and the amount that we have invested in the pre-tax IRAs or traditional IRAs and all that stuff, it will it will be uh, very sizable by the time uh, we hit 59 and a half. So It seems, actually, we got uh, some hate mail, like, hey, Doug, you shouldn't tell people not to invest in those. But there are specific reasons why you might consider it. It's not right for everyone. But we made that decision. It maybe wasn't the best decision if we look back. But it was was fine, and everything's fine. And we have a lot of flexibility now.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. That's probably underappreciated. So if we think of it, there's three different buckets. One, is a pre-tax 401k, another one is a pre-tax uh, Roth investment, and another one is just the brokerage account. But each of those accounts have have distinct advantages. Like the Roth, you could take your principal before you're 59 and a half, but you can't get at The rest, the 401k, you can't do anything with unless you want to do one of these complicated tax things. But the post-tax brokerage, it's kind of like a Roth because unless you two take a whole bunch of money out, like you could probably take... Let's say you put ninety thousand in there, and it grows to one hundred and eighty thousand dollars. You could take that whole one hundred eighty thousand dollars out, assuming there's no other income, and not pay any taxes on it because you're still under that capital gains rule, the capital gains limit, and then the, there's the standard deduction and all that. So I think the the post tax brokerage account is never talked about in the FI community, but I think it's uh, it's underappreciated and. As long as you don't have some crazy ass lifestyle, you're probably not going to pay taxes on it either. You'll pay the taxes up front, just like a Roth, but you're not going to pay them on the back end. And like you said, it gives you another lever to pull for flexibility.
0: And one that we really didn't get into, I mean, it's HSA. Do you guys have an HSA? Yes. Okay. And that one gets like even better tax benefits, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, like tax free on both sides. So you save a little bit of income tax. And then when you use it, you don't have to pay any taxes either. It's great.
0: And we we weren't aware until the last few years. And when I started consuming a lot more, um, you know, FIRE content and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, we we should do this. Um, So we got started a little too late. But luckily, our other buckets are pretty good. But I mean, that would be another distinct fourth bucket, right?
1: Yeah. And HSA is great at. I'm pretty sure I should know this, but you can get at the money after a certain age, even if you don't use it for health stuff. Okay. Yeah. See your tax professional again. Don't, don't trust us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I took our HSA and we had a flexible one and I bought a bunch of uh, Tesla stocks so or HMA HSA <laughs> is kind of substantial. So I'm gonna have to come down with some kind of good chronic diseases to, to spend oh, it down. I think.
0: Wow. That's great. That's like having like a huge investment in um, in your Roth, you know,
1: yeah, kind of. I guess as long as we can get at it without being sick, because I, I prefer not to get sick. Yeah. Try <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Not, not worth the cost. Okay. So I think we covered that pretty well. Uh, next is ending up with excess savings. And Carl, you mentioned that's a good problem to have. And I say, go to a pro. Go to an advisor. And I... A year ago, if you would ask me six months ago, I probably wouldn't have said go to an advisor. Even when I hear some of our friends are like, oh yeah, like when you are starting to plan like further out, then you probably need to go to a pro who knows what's going on and like certain checkpoints that you need to take a look at. Elizabeth and I personally met with Travis and Eddie, our friends over at Downshift Financial, and The thing is, you know, they're fee-based. They're not assets under management. So those are the folks you have to look out for. You should be, I think there's websites with directories. So you could find someone that you want to work with. And the thing is the pros see this all the time. So they can look at your balance sheet and they know certain checkpoints that you need to pay attention to in general and say, Hey, you know, you have uh, the RMDs are going to be a problem if you don't start doing things a little bit sooner. Like you said, you get 16 years, so it's not going to sneak up on you. But if you're not paying attention, you know, maybe you, you know, you're getting older, you forget stuff all the time. So if you go to a pro, they can help you out and guide you. And like I said, I'm surprised that I've like changed my tune on that. But I have, I mean, I heard advisors like uh, Joe Saul Seaheis. He mentions this um, uh, every now and then uh, stacking Benjamins, you know, he's a former financial advisor. And it's like, ah, when you actually start planning, like once we're past the 4% rule and you're trying to make a plan for like 45 years, you might need someone to take a look at it. That's not just in your circle of friends. Right. Who's like, Hey, I'm just, it looks good to me. You got a lot of money.
1: Yeah, Doug, I think you make a really good point. And I've come around to this too, so much so that Mindy and I actually are going to hire someone to look over our stuff. It's not going to be as in-depth as you, but we want to make sure there's no optimization. So I think where a a fee-based advisor might not make as much sense or an advisor might not make as much sense as when you're young it's going to be a more significant proportion of your savings and, and all that. So you're going to pay a lot more for it. And things are pretty simple when you're young. Let's just max out our 401k. But as we get older, it gets a lot more complicated, right? And especially there's the investment part, but then there's a the life part too. When you disengage from a job, you're not going to have the income. So you're going to have to depend on that money. Like if uh, an advisor might be able to give you one piece of advice that could save you Maybe hundreds of thousands over the long term. Just a tweak to what you're doing, like maybe t- taking money out from the 401k to avoid those RMDs later on, or something like that. But and like I know Eddie and Travis, those guys are super smart. Like uh, they talk on our Discord, and and uh, I know those guys know what they're doing. So I've come around to this too. While we won't go to the same level as you, I think it's definitely worthwhile. Especially if you've got all these different buckets to have someone look at. Hey, I've got one-third in in brokerage, I've got one-eighth in a Roth. Like, is this where we should be? And if not, what could we do to optimize it?
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's a a great example. We just kind of lucked out. We kind of have the right proportions in the various buckets. And it was kind of dumb luck. I mean, we, we planned ahead and it worked out okay. But like, if we had all of our... Um, money all of our nest egg in pre-tax we would have to fucking figure out how to get it out and it's not i mean you there's things you could do but it's not a slam dunk like the roth conversion ladder five years right like we would have, we would have had to take a penalty basically or keep working yep. for five years yeah so
1: okay and, and those investments those kind of instruments are complicated too so a tax professional is going to be able to guide you through them and sign off on it so you don't mess anything up which is critical you don't want to have the irs sending you letters in the mail <laughs> yeah uh yeah one other thing i want to go back to real quick as we talked about the excess savings and one thing people could do <laughs> is support our podcast over on <laughs> over over on buy me a coffee uh one thing we did we had we have chris who very kindly volunteered to help us out he wouldn't take money from us. So one of the things we did with our proceeds from the Buy Me a Coffee is we bought him a uh, Camp Fi weekend. So I just met him for the first time. Super great guy. Ah, his wife made me a, a Taylor Swift t-shirt, which I'll wear on a future episode. Uh, so it, it would be nice to cover the cost and to be able to pay people to make this podcast a little bit better, maybe edit it. So I don't sound so stupid too.
0: <laughs> There's only so much that editing can do. You also get extra content over on buy me a coffee. So we, we've been recording videos of progress of the, of the book that we're writing and we, we release those early and then uh, people at buy me a coffee get to see it. We also, um, we just, do post occasionally. We're not super regular with it, but we do post some extra content out there. The other thing that we uh, end up doing, uh, one reason we're in the hole, we're just uh, nice people and generous as everyone knows, but we buy t-shirts and we just give them out. Like there's some, like a couple people have purchased t-shirts and we really appreciate it, but there's not that many. We usually just buy stuff and give it away. And we just got a, I got a batch of stickers and you were given some out. There's some special edition asparagus ones as well. But, uh, yeah.
1: And it, it surprisingly enough, Doug, I, I was telling Doug about this offline, I put all three equal amounts of all three stickers out, and I think, I forgot, I, were the asparagus ones the most popular? I think they might have been, which surprised me.
0: Yeah, Or I thought you said the ones with our face on there. Oh,
1: yeah, and maybe that's why I was surprised. That I, I was surprised, I, too. Yeah, <laughs> I was unsure who would want that. But another thing, Doug, is we just bought a cricket machine, if people are familiar with that. So I have all these ideas for custom swag and. What we're going to do when we come out with a book for Buy Me A Coffee supporters, we're going to have packages where you get a book and maybe a T-shirt, maybe an old school one, or maybe even like a, a custom one that's a one-off or a five-off. Yeah. And we've, we've got some pretty cool ideas around that. And that machine's supposed to show up Sunday, I think, all in. Like I spent 600 bucks on all that stuff. But, oh, uh, you did? Yeah. I super- <laughs> oh, wow. We could make some. Yeah. So, so Doug real quick I ordered a bunch of like the tri-blend I could sell to Doug I'm into good t-shirts too but Doug is into it more than me so I consulted Doug and told me what t-shirts do you get back. Doug we need to come up with swag that no one else has and I'm thinking I don't know if they have this but like tri-blend underwear and then we could have mile hi-fi like boxers or like maybe thongs if that's what you're into or whatever a thong wouldn't give us that much real estate to put our <laughs> logo on but could, maybe yeah. on the front I guess yeah yeah, probably in the front.
0: That makes sense. It's real odd to end on this note. But uh, you had a question for the audience too, right?
1: It, it is odd, but Doug, <laughs> I just love the idea. Like some people have diversified into socks. And it's kind uh, of a statement yeah. for us. Like we're not trying to advertise because a t-shirt like socks, other people see it. We're just trying to give you something you need. So here's Mile high fi underwear. Imagine the surprise on your partner's face when you disrobe <laughs> and there's a, a fluorescent biplane on your on your private parts.
0: Yeah, that, be, will, that will be shocking.
1: It'll be great. Okay, let's end on that note. Uh, so we're going to talk. So Austin was very curious about what retired life looks like. And for any of you who are out there, what does your retired life look like? Uh, do you still work? Do you have income? Do you consider yourself retired if you do? What does your daily routine look like? Uh, leave a comment on the Facebook group, the YouTube Uh, Channel or uh, send us an email and we'll have links to all three of these in the show notes.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. So we're out here in the mountains writing again, and we have a similar setup where we're like sitting at a table across from each other. And I noticed lots of fucking mess. Uh, First of all, there's like wires everywhere we are recording. So, I mean, there's headphones, there's microphones, there's like a million USB cables. I'm sure we're violating some kind of fire code with all the daisy chained, um, just electrical sockets we have going on. But there's also a lot of uh, paper notebooks, so I, I like to write by hand. I see you. You have a couple, actually. So do you prefer like a paper notebook versus like writing uh, writing your notes or whatever in, a, in an app?
1: Yeah, that is a great question, Doug. I'll show you my my first notebook. Did you wonder why I had a Hello Kitty notebook at all? Or?
0: I, I've seen that a couple of times. Uh, but you know what? I just thought it was something that was really important to you.
1: Uh, no, Hello Kitty is actually not really important to me. I, did, I don't care for or I, I don't dislike Hello Kitty. I just don't know much about her or him. I, I guess it's a her because she has a bow. But, okay, I'm going down a rabbit hole or maybe a cat <laughs> hole that I shouldn't go down. Uh, but yeah, uh, this was free. They had a free rack at the Longmont Library where people can dump off their old magazines and books. And this was on there. It had not been touched. So I grabbed it. And I do like writing. It's nice to have by the side of the bed. Sometimes I'll have ideas before I go to sleep and I don't like having my phone or an electronic device. And uh, it's just something I can have in my bag, which I take with me at all times. And uh, yeah, I do like the written word and writing. I'm curious, what is the appeal of it to you?
0: Probably a little similar. I get distracted, you know, with our, our phones or apps or whatever. And I think whatever back in the Back in the day, uh, 10 years ago, it's like, oh, there's this this app you can use and syncs all this stuff together and blah, blah, blah. And I would try that stuff, but it never actually helped anything. I would like partially set things up and then like never use it again. There's probably three or four apps that I did that with. The other thing is when you write it by hand, it like forces you to go slower anyway. And I was reading some article I can't remember the context or any of the details. It doesn't matter, but like the, the, it was kind of about the bullet journaling method. I guess. Have you, have you tried that? Do you, are you familiar?
1: I am familiar with it, but I have never tried it. So uh,
0: similar to the apps, I kind of started doing it, but I kept it up for much longer. It's a lot more adaptable than some of the, what I felt like the apps were driving me towards. Anyway, in the article it mentioned the bullet journaling method kind of forces you to do like repetitive things. So let's say you have a, a task and you didn't complete it that day. You would need to carry it over to the next day and like rewrite it. So it, like forces you to think, well, I skipped it for four days in a row. Am I really going to do this? Does it actually matter? And then things just fall off. So anyway, I have a bunch of like paper notebooks and I, it looks like you snatched that from like a, There's like a, there was a young girl that wanted to get the Hello Kitty notebook from the library, and then you took it away from her or something like
1: that. <laughs> I, I probably sort of left it there for someone who would have appreciated it more than I did.
0: But it was sitting there. No one picked it up. I, I'm sure no, you didn't take it from a kid, probably. So, so yeah, I, I like paper notebooks now for our writing. So we're writing the books and, and working on that stuff. What do you use the written, uh, like handwritten notebooks for in the writing process?
1: Whenever I have ideas, I get out my notebook and write it down. So this thing is turned into pages and pages of disorganized notes and thoughts. Uh, So then I have to open my computer and find a way to make sense of them all. Like all the time throughout the day, I'm always thinking about the book and other things. And if I don't write it down. It's super annoying because I'll remember that I had a great thought, but I have no idea what the thought was. And it usually doesn't come back to my brain unless I can try to go down whatever line of thought I had at that time. I can't resurface it. So whenever I do have a good thought, I need to write it down immediately. And that's what I use the notebook for.
0: I can't remember if it was Stephen King or someone else who was like, don't even worry about that. If it's a really good idea, you'll have it again.
1: Uh, That is not the case with me.
0: I, I don't know. Maybe I could, I'll look that up. That's actually, that could be a section in the book. Cause I've tried, you know, I bring her notebook around in my pocket sometimes and try to write stuff and then either I forget or the times that I write it down, it's just, uh, it's in the notebook. I never get it out of there. So if it's a good one, I'll have it again. I'll just count on the universe to make sure it resurfaces. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. And for me, I think um, we have uh, the the video froze
1: up here. So I'm going to have to check something, but we'll see how much was recorded here.